1: And no, on, no, mate. Great if you're long for some more half-assed history on the agenda this week. Going to be talking about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. You've almost certainly heard of this taking place, of course, in 1914. It was. It's largely seen as the event that triggered World War I, the First World War at that point, was the greatest military conflict ever seen in human history. And we've all heard the story in general terms. Uh, Gavrilo Princip, a Serbian anarchist, shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was obviously the heir to the throne of, uh, of Austro, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, somehow that had a knock-on effect that then kicked off this huge, years-long war, now, on the face of it, this doesn't seem seem to make a ton of sense, and we're going to talk about that, but on the whole, it's, it's worth having about a, about a chat about the whole story, because it's a really, really good story in and of its own right. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. Uh, we have to go back a little bit here and talk about, or sort of zoom out a little bit, and talk about the, the broader political context of Europe at the beginning of the 20th century. Europe... Europe generally is very, very ready to go to war. All of the great powers, the five great powers, we've got Britain, France, Germany, the austro-hungarian Empire, and uh, and the Russian Empire as well. I guess the Ottoman Empire is sometimes included in that conversation, but not firstly not a European great power and secondly already beginning to very seriously decline uh, by this stage already. so, the, there is there are any number of, of, of little petty political disputes, old grudges and, and people generally just wanting to wave their dicks around and assert their dominance throughout Europe at this stage. And a lot of these grudges and, and all this sort of stuff it goes all the way back to the Congress of Vienna, which happened about a hundred years before this in 1815. It carved up po- post napoleonic Europe like and and you know between all of these these different rulers and princes and kings and, and whatever else. And like any good compromise, people are feeling very grumpy and very hard done by. Uh, additionally, strong feelings of nationalism are a, are a hugely important part of European politics at this stage, with every bloke essentially wanting to prove that his country is the best. There are a number of political crises around the turn of the century that have led the great powers of Europe uh, to be in, in very keen anticipation of a war. And so they start ganging up. There's stuff like the first Moroccan crisis, the Bosnian crisis, the Agadir crisis. They've all helped to strain relations between the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, and the Entente powers, or the triple powers, uh, Britain, France, and Russia. Now, instead of complicated international diplomacy, you know, all that rubbish, essentially you can look at it as a bunch of Essentially, pissed up dickheads at a bar who were saying, like, oh, oh whopper, come on, man, take a swing. What are you going to do? Take a swing, stand there, man. One phone call, one phone call, bro. My cousins come here, they'll smash you, man. What? So, obviously, the bottles do get smashed on the bar and the punches start getting thrown around. Uh, and this is all a res- as a result, essentially, of poor old mate uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and even poorer old mate Sophie, his wife, who everyone forgets about, getting murdered in July 1914. That's what's going on on a broader spectrum in Europe. Let's let's zoom in now and talk about Austria, Austria-Hungary, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and 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 Serbia, and this and the Balkans, this specific uh, region, and you know the local background. I guess you could say. In 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire it is falling apart. It was officially established in 1867, and since then the empire had been enormously powerful. It was wealthy and large and heavily industrialized, and it chucked a lot of political weight around throughout the 19th century. But when it finally started starts to collapse, or eventually does collapse, obviously thanks to the First World War, it's uh, the effective end of the Habsburg Monarchy, which was one of the most powerful and important royal dynasties in European history. These guys were next-level royals. Um, incidentally, the House of Habsburg was founded in the 11th century by a bloke whose name is Radbot, which is pretty sick, I reckon. Anyway, in 1914, there are a bunch of different issues uh, that are combining to threaten the empire with collapse. Stuff like having uh, no consistent culture or language, as it was just a bunch of different blokes from all over Central and Eastern Europe that had been whacked together and, and as you know, forced to assimilate into a single empire. Now, one such group was the Bosnians. They were administered by the, Hung- the Austro-Hungarians, of course, who were centred, of course, in Vienna, um, and they were part of the empire. Now, the Bosnian region is in the south of the empire and borders the principality of Serbia. Serbia had actually managed to uh, snag themselves a little semi-independent state, hemmed in by the, the Austro-Hungarian empire on one side and the Ottoman empire on the other side, and also Bulgaria on the third, but, you know, who cares about that? Well, it's not worth much at this, at this stage. This, this Serbian nation, it's characterised by aggressive nationalism and an active and violent resistance to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Before 1914, there are some other assassination attempts made against various Austro-Hungarian officials, but none of them go very far. However, when it's announced that Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the imperial throne, is going to be visiting Bosnia in the summer of 1914, All of these aggressive nationalists in Serbia, they prick up their ears because the time just might have come, they think, to teach these Austro-Hungarian bastards a sharp lesson. So as this event comes into focus, we're now going to talk about the two major players, the two sort of main people that are involved in this, in this drama as it unfolds. The first, of course, is the group of people known as the Black Hand. The Black Hand is a secret society within the Serbian military, so it's, it, it is a, a you know, sub-military organisation, I guess. It's an organisation within uh, these, uh, these armed forces. Uh, their official name is Unification or Death, which is referring to unifying all of the South Slavic people under one nation, Yugoslavia. Uh, in 1913, when it's announced that old mate Francis will be down in Bosnia to inspect some military ex- exercises there, the Black Hand decides that they're going to get up and about and do something about this. The leader of the Black Hand uh, cell in Sarajevo is a bloke named Danilo Illich, who, at this stage, <laughs> despite the fact that he was leading an organisation called the Black Hand, still lived with his mum. So not the you know not the hardest person that you've ever met. Um, anyway, he leaps into Top Gear, however. And he chats with the Black Hand's boss, a fellow whose name is Dragutin Dimitrievich, who is better known by his codename Apis. Now, once Apis has signed off on the plan, Illich goes around recruiting blokes who want to become assassins and have a crack at the Archduke in June. He recruits six blokes, most of them are young and impressionable idiots. Gavrilo Princip, Nedjelko Kabraninovich, Vaso Kubrilovic, Trifko Grabez, Mohamed Mehmedbasic, and Trifko Popovic. I do apologise to anyone of Slavic extraction for the absolute butchery I have perpetrated on those names. I did my best. Um, Everyone who is in or associated with the Black Hand is a big, big fan of this plant. Even some of these sneaky Russian bastards, they give it the nod when they hear... Uh, what's going to go down. So the, the, this plan to assassinate the Archduke is enormously popular within uh, the Black Hand and, you know, the people the people surrounding it. The assassins are given weapons courtesy of the Serbian military and they get to training. They do a bit of shooting and, and that sort of thing in Belgrade, but they're not actually only given weapons. They also get some grenades, maps, a bit of Skrilladilla, and, of course, each of them gets a, a cyanide pill uh, so they can off themselves should the need arise. Obviously, you know, some proper James Bond spy stuff. Although James Bond... I don't think he's ever been given it. I think I think Q has a lot more faith in James Bond. I've never seen him give him a cyanide capsule. Anyway, the Black Hand—they even sought the, assassin out, uh, the, the assassins. They sought them out with some discounted train tickets. They get them on the cheap uh, as they head from Belgrade to Sarajevo, which is I think was pretty bloody nice of them, don't you reckon? Anyway, um, the assassins—they all split up once they've got to Sarajevo, uh, so as not to uh, not to arouse suspicion, and and they wait until this ill-fated visit from the Archduke is actually upon them. So that's the Black Hand—they've prepared for the assassination, they've got the plans in place, and they've got their agents uh, ready to go there in Sarajevo. Let's talk about the Archduke—the other side of this drama, because uh, I think it's well. Okay, let's take a quick break and talk about the the sort of the situation that he was in more broadly, not just with the assassination and you know his, his background as the doomed heir to the imperial throne. He was born in 1863, which meant that he was 50 when he was assassinated. He was the nephew of the emperor at the time, Franz Josef. The reason that he was heir to the throne is that Franz Josef's only son, Rudolf, had shot himself in 1889 after had having been forbidden from continuing to root his mistress, a 17-year-old baroness, who he also shot. So it's fair to say that old mate Rudolf was... Just a little bit imbalanced at the time, um, uh, but had he kept his dick in his pants and his brains in his skull, also I guess important, um, then history might have taken a very different course because, of course, he would have been the heir to the throne rather than uh, Franz Ferdinand. Anyway, as it was, however, it meant that Franz Josef's brother became the heir, uh, and then when he died in 1896, old mate Franz was the next in line. So he's he's had the actual son of the emperor die, he's had his older brother die, and now he, un, you know, which is pretty unlikely all things said and done, he is now the, the next in line to the throne. Um, anyway, Old Mate Friends, he, he's a bit of a man of the world, to be honest. He travelled extensively. He even spent some time in, in Australia, you know, hunting kangaroos and emus and doing all that sort of stuff. He was actually nearly shot in a, hunt, in a hunting accident in 1913, which, again, you know, makes you wonder what might have been different if the bullet that had missed him had just you know been a, a metre or so to the left and, and actually got him. Anyway, he met his future wife, Countess Sophie Chotek, at a ball in Prague in 1894. He was absolutely head over heels in love with this girl from the get-go, and he was dead set on wifing her, but he had to keep it a big, big secret. Because despite Soph being, you know, a fancy aristocratic knob, just like all the other, you know, fancy aristocratic knobs that were so fashionable at the time, she wasn't quite nobby enough to marry into the Habsburg family. The Habsburgs are another level above uh, this Countess, uh, Sophie. So Franz, he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He's like, no, nah, I want her. I've got to have her. And so when his uncle Franz Josef told young Franz Ferdinand that he couldn't marry Sophie, he told his uncle to blow it right out of his imperial ass. After all, they say love conquers all. And so young Franz and Sophie were married all the same. But uh, honestly, it actually didn't quite conquer all because uh, in this case, their marriage was morganatic. This means that all of their heirs would have no claim on the throne and that Sophie herself wouldn't share her husband's titles as she might have done if she were just a little bit knobbier. Now this doesn't sound like a big deal but what it actually means is that Franz and Soph weren't allowed to appear in public together while he was going around doing you know all the stuff that imperial heirs do. It's it's absolutely tragic really because... Franz, you know, he'd finally, occasionally find ways around all these stupid rules, uh, as he did with his trip to Sarajevo. Uh, the, 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 it was quite clever, actually, because he he wasn't going as the imperial heir officially. He was going as the inspector general of the Austria, Austro-Hungarian armed forces, which meant that she was able to go with him. And obviously very clever, but obviously also very tragic, because we all know what happens there. So the most interesting thing about this whole scenario, you know, quite, a, quite aside from the fact that he has this kind of, you know, really difficult situation uh, thanks to the the rules of the aristocracy aristocracy with his with his marriage uh, the most interesting thing about him is that unlike his uncle franz was actually in favor of granting greater autonomy to many ethnic groups that were part of the empire this means that had they not you know shot him in the head then the serbs may have been able to sort something out with him if they just waited uh, once he became you know, emperor vis-a-vis this whole Yugoslavia business, he would have been probably a lot more receptive to that than his old uncle. As it was, of course, poor old Franz and his wife, Sophie, they met their end in Sarajevo in nineteen fourteen. So let's actually get to the you know, talk about the assassination itself once that once they've arrived there in Sarajevo. So now, it's the 28th of June, 1914, and everything is ready for the visit of our friends Franz and Sophie, both from a logistical perspective and a let's-kill-this-bastard perspective. Illich has lined up his six assassins, whose names I'm not going to repeat because, again, it was bad enough the first time, along the route that the motorcade is going to take. How did he know this route, you ask? A great question. How could they know the route that the motorcade was going to take? Obviously, a top-secret, highly-protected piece of military... Oh, no, actually, no. Uh... It was uh, published in a public program, uh, like a newspaper, uh, for anyone to read. So, well done, Illich, on your enormously successful espionage campaign. You went out and bought a small pamphlet that told you what, what you need to do. Well done. Anyway, before the motorcade begins, Illich is going up and down to these six assassins, geeing them up, getting them amped, getting them pumped, going, oh, God, get ready, gonna plug, this bass, it's going to be fantastic, and going to have a great time. There are a bunch of huge stuff-ups that are headed our way at full speed now. So let's get to the first of them. Number one, when Franz arrives at the sixth car motorcade, he hops into his car, which is a fancy convertible, uh, which was third in line. However, by mistake a bunch of regular cops also uh, jump aboard the other cars instead of the special security officers that had been planned to go along to keep things safe. So instead of these, you know, security experts that had been set aside specifically for the, uh, for the Archduke, instead he's along with these just, you know, normal idiot cops. So that's, that's stuff up number one. Anyway, the motorcade gets underway at around 10 o'clock in the morning, driving driving along the river. And at this stage, we come across uh, stuff up number two. The bloke in charge of the local military, General Michael von Appel, probably Michael von Appel, uh, that I, at least at least I can do German names, uh, he hadn't deployed his troops to, to line the streets because he didn't want to piece people off. Yeah, mm. nice one, Mick. Instead a fair few more people get a fair bit bloody more pissed off and we end up having the whole world war business. So spot on, old son. Good on you for not deploying those troops to, you know, look after the sensibilities of the people there in Sarajevo. Anyway, continuing up along the river, the motorcade approaches the first assassin, Mohamed Basic. Mohamed has a grenade, but rather than do anything with it, he just craps his dacks and wusses out like an absolute dickhead. He stands there with his thumb up his bum as the car drives past and doesn't do a thing. So next up, at about 10 past 10, is Nedeliko Kabritovich, who doesn't mess about. He lobs his grenade straight at the car with the Archduke. Nice one, Ned, get in there. But the grenade doesn't kill Franz there, obviously. It bounces off the folded-up convertible roof and onto the street, and then blows up, blasting the car apart and injuring a bunch of people, although the Archduke and his wife aren't amongst them. So poor old Ned, he realises that he's stuffed it all up beyond belief, and so pops the cyanide into his gob and leaps into the river to end it all except the cyanide is past its use-by date and only causes him to vomit violently rather than die, and he's not about to drown in the river because it is only just over 10 centimetres deep because it's the middle of a hot and dry summer. So, just just to get this picture clear into your mind, there's Ned lying in the muddy riverbed spewing his guts up when the cops come and drag him out. Rather than the heroic death of a martyr, he gets dragged out of the mud by the cops while chucking his guts up after having popped a pill. Yeah, he has the absolute crap beaten out of him by the crowd before he's properly arrested and taken away. And uh, I'll tell you this, Ned isn't the only one who's spewing. Franz is ropeable about the attempt on his life, and he speeds away with Sophie in a different car towards the town hall. The motorcade whizzes past all the other assassins who don't get the chance to have a crack at an assassination of any kind whatsoever, and also, thankfully... Uh, prevent me from having to say their names again and once franz is inside he gives the mayor a proper tongue lashing um now sophie he has she's a bit of a whisper in his ear and he chills out a little bit you know realizes that it's not necessarily the mayor's fault um but then you know goes on right as why right as rain, after he's after he's sort of dressed down the mayor like this he ends up actually giving the speech that he had prepared um uh, despite reportedly that it was uh covered in blood. So check this out. Even after the assassination attempt, even after this whole thing on his on his life, even after dressing down the mirror like this, he still stands up in front of all the people he was supposed to and gives the speech uh, that he was, you know, scheduled to give. So this bloke, absolute what a, what a hard nut he is. I mean, what a bloody tough cookie. Anyway, when they were finished in the town hall, everyone has a chat about what they should do about this whole assassination situation. Now Francis Chamberlain. Uh, suggests that they wait until the troops have been, that have been vetoed previously uh, could come uh, come back and guard the, the streets. But another bloke, who I will name and shame as Oscar Potiorek, says, no, bugger that, they won't be in their dress uniforms. And besides, what do you reckon? Do you think that Sarajevo is, is full of all these assassins? Um, and that is a direct quote from the bloke. He asked specifically, do you really think there are more assassins waiting? So, yeah, good on you, Oscar. Really good stuff from you today, mate. Franz has had enough, however. He cancels all of his official plans and he decides instead to go and visit the hospital and see all the people that were injured by Ned's grenade. Sophie doesn't like this plan at all and tries to talk him out of it, but no, nope, sorry, sorry, Dal. sorry, love, gonna go along, don't care what you say. They jump back into the car and drive off towards the hospital, but, oh no, what's this? It's another huge stuff up. Of course we weren't finished yet. The driver, a bloke named Leopold Loika, he didn't know Sarajevo all that well at And on top of that, he hadn't been given directions to the hospital, so instead of driving back along the river, he follows the original motorcade route and chucks a right into Franz Josef Street, where it all comes a gutzer at about quarter to eleven. When they realise that Leopold has taken a wrong turn, they yell out for him to stop and hang a yui and head back around towards the river. He promptly stops the car and who is standing less than two metres away from the car when it stops? It is, of course, old mate Gavrilo Princept. And he cannot believe his luck. He leaps into action. But let's stop for a second. Why was he there? Why was he there? Of course, you've all heard the story, I'm sure, that he had wandered off to buy a sandwich. Uh, and then after having bought it, he just happened to run into the car uh, that the that you know the, the the archduke was in this is not entirely true he didn't go and buy a sandwich he was standing outside a sandwich shop when he attacked he had actually not gone off and given up to buy a sandwich he had very dutifully been looking for a spot still to try to kill the Archduke when he came back so it was just this wild coincidence that he happened to be standing not only on the street where the driver made a wrong turn but more or less exactly where the car stopped uh, anyway Gav, as I say, he leaps into action, jumps forward and blasts two slugs of hot lead straight towards the car. Later, during the trial, he claimed to not even know where he was shooting as it all happened so fast and as he was surrounded by a busy crowd of people. Uh, With that in mind, it's actually pretty amazing that both shots managed to find a target and kill both Franz and Sophie. After getting off the two shots, Gav swallowed his cyanide pill, but again, it doesn't work as, as we've already talked about, and so instead he tries to shoot himself in the head. The crowd, however, they, they obviously converge on him, leap on top of him, rip his pistol from his hand, and then he is taken away by the police quick smart. Now, poor old Franz, he's hit in the throat and he has uh, his jugular, jugular vein ripped to shreds, while Sophie is hit in the guts. And both, they were dead before an hour had passed. It's very, very tragic indeed. Franz's last words were Sophie, don't die, live for our children. Before he repeated, "It's nothing. It's nothing." Over and over again, after being asked about his wounds, obviously it was something because yeah, he didn't last the hour. And, and this poor bloke, who really was completely a victim of circumstance, as he meets his end the morning of uh, of the twentieth of June, nineteen fourteen, and and that is that for him. Now, of course, we need to talk about what happened after all of this, and the First World War wasn't the only consequence of this assassination, although it was obviously the the most important one. So. Uh, Gavrilo uh, along with the rest of the assassins they were tried and they were sentenced for this assassination um something like, i don't think if i point i don't know if i pointed this out before Gavrillo was only 19 years old and and so as a result he was uh, too young to get the death penalty only only by 27 days so he you know just missed it by a very very small margin but instead he as well as some of the assassins uh, they got 20 years in prison and they were imprisoned in horrific conditions as the war dragged on he actually ended up getting tuberculosis while in prison and died at the age of 23 on the 28th of April in 1918. And when he died, he weighed just 40 kilos. Um, on the other side of things, for his part, Franz. Franz wasn't buried in the Imperial crypt, despite being the you know heir to the throne. And again, this was because his wife wasn't noble enough. And this wasn't all. The rules were so ridiculous that Franz and Sophie's orphaned children weren't allowed to come to the public ceremonies for their old man. But of course, the much larger consequence, as I say, as we all very well know, is the First World War. It begins exactly one month later on the 28th of July 1914. And why? Why was this one bloke getting shot enough to trigger this this enormous conflict that dragged on for years and years and years and cost nearly 20 million lives? It's because Austria-Hungary immediately cracked down on the Slavic areas that they controlled and a month to the day after the assassination declared war on Serbia itself. Russia, as a retaliatory measure, uh, obviously mobilized against uh, against the Austro-Hungarian Empire and declared war on them because they're mates with Serbia. And for good measure, also declared war on Germany because they were because Germany is mates with Austria-Hungary. You'll remember the the Central Powers. Germany then declares war on France for being mates with Russia. And finally, Great Britain enters the war on the fourth of August when Germany invades Belgium so as to get to France. So what followed was over four years of the most horrific. And senseless waste of human life that has yet been seen on our planet. As I say, estimates vary, but as high as 19, maybe even 20 million people, military and civilian alike, losing their lives. And it, it was just an it was an absolutely senseless tragedy. But I want to point something out here. I want to point something out here. The often repeated idea that this whole thing never would have happened if Franz Ferdinand hadn't lost his life in Sarajevo in in uh, on that day. It's completely and utterly untrue. As I said, right at the start, Europe is like a powder keg. It would have blown up as soon as the next political crisis came along. So I guess the question here is, did the assassination start the war? The short and the rather rather lazy answer is yes. Although I think it would be more accurate here to say it was this complicated system of of military alliances, the political climate of the late colonial period, and all of this nationalist dick-waving that was going on at the time that really started uh, World War One, although you know, you obviously can't have one without the other but I do think it's fair to say that that's really what did start the First World War and not some misguided 19 year old plugging an arch tube. although in fairness, that certainly didn't bloody help But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Poor old Franz, meeting his end. And Gavrillo Princip as well, not doing, too, uh, not doing too well out of the whole deal. I mean, the whole world, there were no real winners. No one really came out of this whole situation, you know, particularly well, I, I think it's fair to say. Anyway, going to wrap, wrap things up now, of course. A, f- a couple of quick reminders. Jump on Twitter, half-arsed history without an O. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. Um, you'll be able to get across all the stuff I post there, usually on a daily basis, just interesting stuff I've come across while I'm reading. Uh, half is the is the website for this podcast. If you want to find further information about the show, get in touch, half at gmail.com, the best way to do that. Also, have a link to the Patreon that I've set up. And, and again, a very deep and heartfelt thank you to uh, the patrons who still are giving money despite there being no... Uh, rewards or anything else like that so uh, some very some very generous altruism there and I really do appreciate it I'm going to sort out some rewards for my patrons at some point I've got stickers to give away still send us an email uh, if you want them I'll send them to you for free, no worries uh, just at gmail.com again uh, let me know you want some stickers with your address I'll send them through, it's fine, don't even worry about it and we're going to finish the show this week of course with a question posed on Reddit this one posed by Lorf underscore Yimzo fantastic name I have to say um, and it's a good one as well Did Franz Ferdinand's hit single, Take Me Out, have anything to do with his assassination in 1914?